Natasha called me up and said, I'm trying to build a new digital infrastructure for Australia. And I said, well, that sounds like it's in my wheelhouse. Hi, my name is Kirsten Jowett. I'm a proof of location specialist, and I'm your host for Lay of the Land. Proof of location is going to be important in every network, in free and open source software, in permissionless blockchains, in permissioned blockchains, and in private networks. Today I'm interviewing my first guests from a permissioned blockchain, Ariane Garside and Natasha Blacher of the Australian National Blockchain. Hi, joining me today is Ariane Garside and Natasha Blacher from Herbert Smith Freehill. Welcome Ariane and Natasha. Thank you for having us. Hello. I have you here with me today to talk about the Australian National Blockchain and how it relates to proof of location. It's a pretty new concept, Australian National Blockchain. Can you talk to us a bit about what it is? Sure can. So the Australian National Blockchain is a consortium of IBM, CSIRO and Kingwood Mallison's and Herbert Smith Freehills, the latter two being large global law firms, who've come together to work out what the best method that we can use to create efficiencies between businesses using digital technology. So we know that in the economy there are efficiencies to be gained behind the gate. So those are the efficiencies we use within our own systems, in our own business or within the public sector in our own um, department. But where efficiencies have not been truly um, exacted are those efficiencies between relationships. So in order to do that and do that in a way that uh, facilitates the public good, the Australian National Blockchain is about creating a digital permanent ecosystem where we use not a centralised authority to keep a record of those digital transactions that flow between that network can you tell us about your background and how you got here? My background is, is that I am a technology lawyer here at Herbert Smith Freehills and my specialty is in virtual assets. But if you ask about my personal story, it's that for many years I was a stay-at-home mum. So I had a substantive amount of time working as a lawyer and then I had time uh, away from the law. So I had time at home and time certainly not in a business environment. Then when I returned to the law, when my children were all in full-time school, I was quite surprised to see that we were still doing things the same way that we had been doing them when I had left 10 years previously. And on top of that, so that was looking from the, the, um, the site of what is happening within our own organisation. And at the same time, in my role as a technology lawyer, I was able to go into clients across different industries and see the struggles that they were having with bringing efficiencies through automation to their own businesses. And the closer that I got to the bottlenecks for smart contracting and the bottlenecks for uptake of blockchain technology, uh, the more pressing it became that there needed to be a better system, a more efficient system uh, to actually enable businesses, law firms themselves, and businesses more generally in the economy to be able to use this great new technology. Super, thanks. And Ariane, how did you get here? Um, bit of a winding story, but I started here at Herbert Smith Freehills as a lawyer and um, ended up on the dispute resolution team as a litigator, which is where I met Natasha. 
um, about a year ago, I started to become very, very interested in emerging technologies and how they were starting to really have the potential to impact the way that the law is practiced, but also more broadly, the way that the world is actually run. And I have a particular personal interest in social impact and the way that society is actually structured. And I could see a real opportunity for the idea that this technology, such as blockchain, artificial intelligence, is actually going to start becoming the new basis or woven into the fabric of society. And there are ways to design that integration that can lead to better social outcomes for people rather than just designing them for the greatest profit or efficiency. And so because of that interest, that led me to apply to do an MBA at the University of Oxford. Now, that MBA has a strong focus on social impact and actually using business mechanisms to create global and systems change. So I had an amazing year in Oxford and at the end of it, Natasha called me up and said, I'm trying to build a new digital infrastructure for Australia. And I said, well, <laughs> that sounds like it's in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so we've been very lucky. And I think it, one thing I would say is the Australian National Blockchain team is made up of the best of tech and the best of law. So the people who are working on this project, they just happen to be excellent at what they do on a technical level but they also happen to be a group of people who are truly interested in creating a piece of infrastructure for the nation that is both efficient, as Ariane has pointed out, not just efficient, it's actually able to generate good social outcomes for the country as well. That's really interesting, the social impact that you hope to have with this project. Can you talk a little bit about how it formed and what it hopes to do? Sure. When we use the word traditional blockchain projects, it's quite amusing for anyone who's been in the industry because traditional is not a very long timeline. But what we did see is patterns developing. And in my practice, I saw that in order to uh, use blockchain technology, you really had two options. And one was that you could use a, uh, a large public permissionless blockchain and then you would run into a host of legal issues uh, and I say that coming from the perspective of our clients being large corporate entities or the government sector. Or alternatively, you could create a private blockchain, a private permissioned blockchain, and that blockchain would involve a real human and time cost where you would set up a blockchain around a specific use case and there would have to be a real cost-benefit analysis about what return on investment that particular private blockchain could provide to you. So if you see the two choices, neither of them are particularly appealing. And also it's not it's just not how the real world works um, in terms of the, the latter option of the private blockchains. Because even if you do have a use case to automate a feature of your business, say your supply chain, um, and you can get a good ROI on creating a private blockchain around that, you have other elements of your business that will also need to be automated. So in that milieu, what we see is we see hundreds of different blockchains being created. And in fact, what you have is the equivalent of hundreds of internets being created. So our system, the Australian National Blockchain, is a method of not displacing private blockchains, not displacing public permissionless blockchains, but creating, if you will, a digital spine for a country. 
And that digital spine is trying to cope with the problem of interoperability that you have in blockchain where blockchains don't talk to each other. So create a network where you can plug in existing private blockchains and give people access to a greater network, make it easier for people to onboard onto a private blockchain and where people don't want to create their own blockchain to pick up automation efficiencies, allow those people to use the infrastructure that we've laid down permanently. Now, the special source in the Australian National Blockchain is that we looked for a mechanism by which all of this could happen easily and using existing relationship metric. And what we know as lawyers is the thing that exists between parties that could be digitised in order to lay down that digital line, if you will, between business to business or create this network is the contract. So in the past, we know that money's been digitised. We know when it comes to relationships in a uh, private sense, you have social media, you digitise those relationships. But what we found is if we wanted to digitise relationships in the economy, that the best metric or mirror for those relationships was actually the contract. So the special source is what's called the smart legal contract. And a smart legal contract is a traditional contract. And within that contract, we digitise or embed smart clauses, which are actually smart contracting, into a traditional framework. And by virtue of doing that, you are able to identify obligations and rights. You're able to timestamp obligations and rights. And you're also able, without trying, to give um, network participants or people in the economy an identification within a network. So questions around giving somebody a digital ID become less onerous because you get people who are doing what they've already done, i.e. using contracts and already paying for contracts to ultimately now have a network of those people. So that's the the methodology is how do we create a network? How do we stop people um, inefficiently trying to automate their processes between parties? And this is is the method. Use a smart legal contract to lay down the digital line, give um, participants a network and give them an ID in the network. Okay, so you're providing a network for efficiency and sort of a digital mirror of what's happening in the real world and you're using smart contracts so everyone doesn't have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to use this new network. Is that right? That's um, right, yes. It's just worth mentioning at this point, the um, there's a significant distinction between smart contracts and smart legal contracts. Uh, smart contracts being the term used more in the um, cryptocurrency or open permissionless blockchain world to refer to isolated strings of code used to automatically execute a single transaction or action, whereas smart legal contracts are actually full, complex, commercial-scale contracts that occur between companies but with an element of automatable um, code that allows them to be automated in whole or in part. And that's perfect because that leads me to the next question. You have a team of lawyers, obviously, that have built this. And so let's talk about on a little bit of a higher level, who is running the Australian national blockchain? Because it may sound a bit like it's a government initiative because it has some government names in it, Australian national. But could you tell us how that operates? Yeah, so when 
new tech is first developed, it sometimes happens that it is developed by very clever startups and people who are not necessarily um, knowledgeable about the regulatory environment or the legal obligations of the people who might need to use that tech going forward. And this is a a maturation of this sort of crypto punk idea coming out of the idea of who do we trust and do we want centralised authorities to be responsible for X, Y and Z. So A and B is a bit of a pragmatic approach to governance and the governance structure is a pragmatic move from saying we don't want a centralised authority in charge of the network because we think this is a very serious piece of infrastructure. And so your question is who's responsible? And the answer is there's a network of people who are responsible. So it's a belt and braces of this trust concept. So it is government. Yes, there's government invited. There's regulators invited to sit and hold that network. But it's also working together with private enterprise, so large trusted commercial entities, And also we're inviting charities and universities to also assist in becoming part of the governance mechanism and holding nodes or servers on the network itself. Super. That helps me understand a little bit better why it provides a sort of new kind of network. So I just want to move in a little bit to proof of location and how we can prove where goods are in, let's just say, a supply chain or the provenance of an item, where it's come from, why would you want to use something like Australian National Blockchain instead of a company who tells you where it comes from? So the whole idea behind the Australian National Blockchain of being this ecosystem or a digital platform for cross-business or business-to-government functions has the result that it actually creates a way for businesses to much better coordinate and talk to each other about their supply chains. So say you have a supply chain of businesses, you've got company A to company B, company B to C, C to D, D maybe goes to E and F, and there's a big long string of companies or um, operations through which a particular item or good might pass. By moving those operations or the guardrails of those operations being um, the contracts between parties onto a digitized platform, you create all kinds of opportunities to build in mechanisms into those contracts whereby company A doesn't have to go down the supply chain and form relationships and talk to all those different companies. You could, for example, choose to open a key to one small part of that string of contracts that allows companies to actually trace the provenance in a live, immutable form on the on the platform. But that's just one potential solution. But the idea being that by having a digital platform, you lay the groundwork and give companies the ability to design a lot of new mechanisms for creating transparency and coordination in their cross-business functions? So I suppose in that context, you're looking at proprietal information. So we're talking about contract to contract and you are using information which will come from sensors which are under the responsibility of the parties themselves. 
So in that context, you don't necessarily have the same queries around proof of location, at least not um, who's responsible for saying that they that they hold the information that's coming into those smart contracts as true or not true. So there is a slight difference when it comes to the target market of enterprise as to whether there's such a focus on proof of location. Um, proof of location, location in terms of a public permissionless blockchain is incredibly important around the supply chain. Um, you know, you, Kirsten, know better than anyone and you're an expert on the issues around GP, the limitations of using GPS and limitations of perhaps saying that one party in this world unnamed should be responsible for holding information about the... There's some very um, good questions around, you know, it's definitely on the right track. We should be exploring proof of location. And it, it is probably right to say that at some point what we are trying to do in terms of sort of this, you know, a global ecosystem or a set of global ecosystems that talk to each other and interoperable has to marry up with proof of location software. Right. So it will marry up with a lot of things. I imagine digital ID as well as proof of location. Having it held on a blockchain is different from having it held within an organization because everyone on this blockchain is held to, accountable to the same standards. I'm not sure if that's right, but what I do know is is that the Australian National Blockchain is about making solutions acceptable to enterprise. So one thing I would say is, you know, of some of the ways that proof of location services are being promulgated, um, and I, I don't want to name any of the, the tokenized methods which are out there, um, they wouldn't necessarily be acceptable to an enterprise level because you still don't have someone to hold accountable so um, in, in the ANB right now, we would need to have data sources for the sake of those enterprise participants who have regulatory obligations or they have reporting obligations to their shareholders, um, that there's somebody, if that information is dirty that comes into the blockchain, there's someone to point the finger at. Okay, great. So this allows that to happen. Yeah, so by use of your smart legal contract, you're creating a civil obligation between two parties to say, we identify this sensor data or we we identify this Internet of Things, um, whatever that may be, and we promise that the information coming from that to each other that we will agree that that is a source of truth. So in some ways it's a sidestep from an issue where, where you are um, really uh, – in a permissionless system, you're, you, you don't know, you know, you have one less step of truth, so to speak. You don't know who you're dealing with. So you've got to have a higher standard or, you know, your proof of location. You need to have that carrot um, system where you're making sure that people feeding information into the system are doing so in a truthful way. Um, give them an impetus to do that. In an A and B world, in smart legal contract world, you're giving people a carrot to do the right thing. Um, but it's actually more of a stick because if they don't do the right thing, there's a penalty uh, that they can have because they've breached their contract. Okay, so what is the carrot then? The carrot is the efficiency that they can pick up by using the smart contracting capability within their contracts. Okay, 
and the stick is just a normal legal normal legal stick and i mean that's to to be clear that is not a full answer because there's different ways that you can create liability within a smart legal contract so you you, it's hard to say until people create those contracts exactly where the fall of of, um, the breach will be if there's a problem but it, it creates a mechanism by which you could punish someone or you have a right against someone if they have data coming into their contract that is not what you um promised each other to have that data to do. I see. Great. So I'm going to try to give an example of a use case so we can put this into a real world context. So you know about the romaine lettuce outbreak, food scare in America recently? Yeah. So if that were to happen in Australia, but you were using the A and B, I guess two things. How would it look if it happened now? And how would it look if it happened with A and B? And perhaps you have another use case you'd rather use. No, no, I'm happy to use that. So I think it's it's not one or the other. There's a couple of counterfactuals. So first counterfactual is you have no insight but analog insight into your supply chain. So that would be slow and unwieldy and it would take time where you ring up each participant down the supply chain and try to find out the genesis of those products and that might take a few days. So therefore you have, if you are um, a supermarket who's selling those products, you wipe the shelves clean and you throw everything out. And obviously there's a huge economic cost to doing that. And it's bigger than an economic cost. There's a social cost to throwing out good food. That's A. Two counterfactuals. One is you are able to use a digitised response because you have monopsony power and you've created your own private permission blockchain around your supply chain. And as I've said before, that's a really good, useful thing to do if you can create a, a return on investment in doing that. So what you've done there is you've created a digital family or ecosystem where you've all agreed to share data. Third solution is the A and B, is you use the existing contracts that, as Ariane pointed out earlier, you, you already have a contract between party A and B, party B and C, C and D, those participants down the network. You don't have to have a contract between A, B, C, D, E and F in the A and B solution. I see. What you do is you open up a clause in a contract between each of those so that you can, and you you don't have insight. So just say you are um, at the supply and you are the supermarket selling the lettuce. You can now use a digital key to go back and inspect a clause which is connected between B and C, between C and D, D and E, D, E and F, and using something that you're already paying for and you already have, your contracts, you now have insight into layers down your supply chain by use of these smart clauses talking to each other or becoming oracles to the other contracts. Great. Thank you for that example. And on a little bit of a higher level, this isn't something that we've seen before in Australia, and I'm not really sure anyone is doing it like this anywhere else in the world. Can you talk a bit about about what you're hoping to do with this? Are you cutting a new road? We are cutting a new road, but what we do know is the problems that we're facing are universal. And we know that there are a lot of people trying to solve these problems um, and they're doing so in different ways. We don't think anyone's put the pieces the same way together as we have. And we are certainly looking to create a solution here in Australia that's world-class not just to be able to create a a better economy for Australia and a better public service for Australia, 
but also to be able to roll that model out in other countries. So ultimately, you know, you end up with a system like this in, you know, a multitude of nations that can plug into each other and passport, if you will, between countries. That's really exciting. So you're not just hoping to do something for Australia, but maybe something that can be used in other countries as well, this model. Yeah, spot on. And um, I think we're pretty excited about the opportunities to do that. And coming back to the team of who's involved, you know, if it is that we get to create a new system of governance for this new world, which does have a higher focus on digitised relationships, then there's a there's much crafting that can be done which takes into account our new ideologies about how we would want men and women and people to participate in, in that system. There are, you know, there's so many opportunities around governance and what a council of people who get to make key decisions around that infrastructure would look like. So, yeah, we're, we're really excited about creating that model you know, new world way and then rolling out that methodology around the constitution of how you would do that, the governance, and rolling it out to other countries as well. So that leads me perfectly into the next question. I don't know which one of you would like to take this, but the roadmap for Australian National Blockchain, what is it? Oh, let me let me have a crack. Um, roadmap. So right now we are able to, uh, we're working with clients to get the first of what are existing contracts on board the system. So that's where we take contracts that exist now and we effectively PDF them and give them a digital ID so that um, users can run artificial intelligence over their body of contracts and, and work out commercial efficiencies. Second stage um, in 2019 is to work with law firms to create these new contracts which have these embedded smart contracting functionality. So Timeline-wise, this new world we're talking about, this is not going to happen overnight and people need to moderate expectations because there's significant change that is required in the law and the way that we do business. But this is not, a, this is not it doesn't need to be perfectly fast. It needs to be done in a way that's pragmatic and needs to be done in a way that keeps, you know, keeps the best of tech at the forefront and the best of ethics in the forefront in terms of our use of artificial intelligence. But it is, you have to start somewhere. And many people have said to us, God, that's a huge, huge idea to take off. And how can you, you know, how can you even see how big that's going to be? And we, our response at A and B is you've got to start somewhere. And it is a very big project, but we've started. And there's lots of people um, who want to participate and get involved. So, you know, if it is... Um, you would say to me, what are you most excited about about the A and B? I would say that it's about people and it's about relationships. And, you know, when we look at the different contributions that people can make in designing the, the new, how the world will operate in the future, you know, just recently we had a launch here in Perth and I had a barrister say to me who is a senior counsel, this is the first time I've been excited about the law in 10 years. Wow. And, Kirsten, you would know this. You know, when you go to blockchain conferences, there's there's an excitement that is is with people about the uptake of this technology. And that sat with me for some time thinking, why is it? Why are we excited about the technology? And I'd like to think that in my mind at least with this project, I'm starting to understand why I am excited about the technology 
And it's about the fact that, you know, we can move away from leaving control in the hands of one person or one party. We can distribute that control to make better decisions about how we as a nation and as a world move ultimately towards, you know, artificial general intelligence. And Ariane, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And one of the things I'd add to that is that that excitement is communal and we're very aware of and very careful about making sure that this design process is collaborative. We do want this to be a truly national digital infrastructure. So we don't want this to just be an infrastructure for you know, the clients of certain law firms. We want law firms to come in and participate. We're working with businesses right now to make sure the design reflects their needs. This is a very collaborative, open design process, and we really do want it to be communal in that way and bring on a lot of different parties and make it um, open in that way. You brought up a good point there, and I think a lot of us who are in this space understand that you won't be owning this project, but perhaps people who aren't in the decentralized permissionless or permissioned blockchain world wouldn't know. So could you talk about who's who owns this? Yeah. So, I mean, you have people who have more ownership because they're the ones doing the hard work of setting it up, but that doesn't equate to who has a voice in the project. So when we say a voice, you know, normally in a normal company, the people who own something are the people who have the voice in it. And actually exactly that metric is voice or shareholding to voice or power within an organisation. But what this is about is actually trying to actually invite lots of people to come in and own, one, step one. But step two, even if you don't own and you're a network participant, having that ability to sit in the council and have a voice around decision-making in the infrastructure. Wonderful. I guess I'm trying to get that you don't own the data that people put on there. Well, I think that I don't know if I want to use the word own, but I do think it's actually about responsibility over the data. Okay. So you do, who do you want to be responsible over the data? And that's actually the bigger question. And that's, you know, again, that's a counterfactual is what, what is, what's the system that we have now? Who has responsibility for data? And at the moment, in terms of, you know, proof of location or in terms of blockchain technology, you know, oftentimes, Um, We're trying to deal with the fact we don't want to have just one person responsible for data or our data. And that's one of the really important things about the design of this platform is because it is enterprise grade, we're being really focused on the ways that we can use the blockchain and distributed ledger technology to actually build in security and privacy for companies that are coming onto the platform. So it's not that they'll have to trust the other network participants not to look at their data. It's that the data will actually be protected and hashed and used um, very carefully between the parties who have agreed to be able to see that data. Um, So there will be built-in security and privacy mechanisms so companies can be sure that their data is kept private. And just in case uh, some of the listeners don't know what a hashed is, do you want to explain it a little bit more? algorithm that's thrown over the data so you bundle all the data together and it's almost like a zip file except a zip file that gives a messy id that can't be replicated or undone uh, to the 
you know, the, the bundle of data. Yep. So you can't actually interrogate that bundle of data. You can't undo it. But it does, it's a fingerprint of all the transactions that took place at a certain time. So it's locked and secure. It's locked and secure. Could I say one other thing, Kirsten? Yeah. When we go back to the start of this story and we talk about the fact that, you know, this uh, the way to date that blockchain technology has been taken up is through this private blockchains or public permissionless blockchains. If I could say one final thing about what, you know, for me is very attractive about this project, it's that the lawyers knew and the lawyers know that large corporate entities and government have cybersecurity obligations around and privacy law obligations that they could not meet in the way that the technology had advanced to date. Mm -hmm. So the thing about the Australian National Blockchain, it is being designed, the actual tech is being designed in a way that allows those enterprise-grade users to pick up the technology. Because, you know, the one, one thing that your listeners should be, you know, conscious of is the world, if we are moving to a world where more things are automated and more things are digitised, that is um, a hackable world. And we know that when we look at our large corporate entities, that the rate at which their data is being hacked is becoming, you know, it's, the speed of hacking is increasing and the danger of keeping data in a centralised location is only getting more and more concerning. I know that I read an article the other day that made me laugh. Well, it shouldn't make me laugh, but it was it was saying that if you're an enterprise architect, you don't sleep anymore because all you do is you think about how do you try to keep your data safe. <laughs> this is, you know, if that's the last point I can make about the A&B, is trying to create a system, a distributed system, to try to increase cybersecurity around that transaction of relationship of automating features between businesses. Businesses. Super. It's an important objective. And Ariane, do you have last thoughts about it? Um, I think just to bring it back to the proof of location idea is that looking ahead, what you have is a world where the digital is creating a digital twin to the physical world. And for businesses, well, what does that mean? That means that we need to create a secure, live way that companies can actually track some really complex operations. Like, for example, if you take a mine site, blue skies ahead, what we would ideally have is a situation where a company running a mine site could log on and look at the location and status of their mine site as seen through all their subcontractor activities in a live and secure way. And that could be um, understood and shared between the parties to those contracts. So you have a live mirror to your operations held in the platform. And I think that's really exciting. It has some really big implications for businesses because you're creating a digital mirror of operations and that opens a lot of doors. Yeah, that is really exciting. Thanks for that analogy of the mining. That's a good one. So is there a way that people can find out more about the Australian National Blockchain if they want to? And how can they get in touch with you to follow your work? Sure. So you can have a look at the website. So it's AustralianNationalBlockchain.com. It's at a first iteration. So don't be too disappointed if it, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. They're coming. There's a contact on the website. Or alternatively, you can get in contact with any of the consortium members through HSF KWM, um, CSIRO, or IBM, and we will um, get you part of the process. Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. 
This podcast is not financial advice. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation, and other advice to check how this podcast relates to your unique circumstances. The makers of this podcast are not liable for any loss caused, whether due to negligence or otherwise arising from the use of or reliance on the information provided directly or indirectly in this podcast. The mention of any company, currency, exchange, or person is not an endorsement of that entity. See you next time on Lay of the Land.